0: hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 65. It's a pre-recorded episode. Um, I interviewed Jan Beatty back in June. We interview four poets a year for our print issues. And um, now that there's a pandemic going on and we do everything over Skype anyway, um, I have four videos that I can just uh, share as Rattlecast episodes, which gives me four opportunities to take a Tuesday night off, which is what I'm doing tonight. Um, I'm actually in the next room over. Watching um, the election returns and seeing what's going to happen with that, as probably a lot of people are. But if you can join us live, I'm, I'm glad you can. If you're watching this after the fact, thank you for that too. I didn't want to leave anybody out, and I want to have a Rattlecast episode every week, and uh, that's what we're doing now. So um, before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. If you like what we do, please click the like button, uh, share it, subscribe, click the bell, all that kind of good stuff. Um, Now, before we begin, um, let's start with a warm-up poem. And since today's poet is Jan Beatty, I thought we would just share one of her poems. She reads um, two of her poems at the end of this interview. Um, But we also published a poem in uh, the current issue of Rattle, which I'll show on the screen in just a second. Um, This is the Rattle number 69, the fall issue which just came out um, in September. And in this issue is a poem by Jan Beatty. And on the website, she uh, reads it. So we'll play that right now. Here you go. This is On the 101 by Jan Beatty.
1: On the 101 begins with an epigraph by Jennifer Elise Forrester, an atlas on the underside of my dream. On the 101, on the cab ride from the San Francisco airport, the driver, a guy named Tom from Southeast Asia. Are you in town for a convention, he says. No, I say, I'm a poet. I'm here to write. His face changes in the rear view. He gets that look in his eye, that flash, then retreat I've seen so often. Are you a writer, I say? Oh, no, no, he says. I work on English. You seem like a writer to me, I say. He smiles. I study. In my country, it's hard to get education. I have done middle school. He grabs three books from the passenger seat, lifts them up. This is what I do. I read these books. I talk to people. Way to learn. The cab fills with moving air my face waking cool to the seerous sky. Wow, I say, that's great. It seems like a really good way to do it. Can I see those books? His face opens, his brown eyes alive, and he passes them back to me. They're written in a language I've never seen. This Burmese, he says, my language. These books I read to learn. I've never seen books like these, I say. Yes, he says, these are my books. Great, I say, as I hand them back to him. We're driving by the San Francisco Bay. I feel opened to the air and the great expanse. Can I find my way to my birth father? Poems of where I came from. Tom hands me one of the books and says, Gift for you. Surprise, I say, oh my. And look at the slim green book, the cover, a waterfall with rose-colored flowers. The cover, an inside written in Burmese. It is a Buddhist book. I am Buddhist, he says. This is very kind of you, I say, and Tom nods. I don't think I should keep this, I say. I don't know how to read it, and this is one of your books. Maybe one day you learn, he says, smiling. I'm nodding. Yes, he's right. Yes, you're right, I say. I can learn like you're learning. Thank you. Thanks so much. I knew I wouldn't learn the language, but I'd read it. I'd feel the voices moving through me as I held the book. Tom is very happy and saying, My gift to you, and I thank him again. The bay still there, blue with its endless stories and upheavals, I say, when we get there, I want to give you one of my books. Tom's face tightens. No, no, not that. I give you my book, my gift. I see I've upset him and say, I know, I appreciate your gift, but I want to give you one of my books as a gift. He looks at me in the rear view, his eyes serious, as if he's checking me for truth. Okay. Okay, he says. Thank you, I say. I open the green book. It's all written in Burmese, with the exception of about ten numbered sentences in English. I open to the first English sentence. Number one, you will be given a body.
0: That was Jan Beatty with... um I'm the 101 from rattle number 69. And here's our interview with Jan. Let me read her bio first. Jan Beatty's sixth book, The Body Wars, will be published in the fall of 2020. That just happened. So check out The Body Wars by the University of Pittsburgh Press. She's the winner of the Red Hen Nonfiction Award for her memoir, American Bastard, forthcoming in 2021. Jackknife, New and Selected Poems. Um, won the 2018 Patterson Prize and was named by San- Sandra Cisneros on LitHub as her favorite book of 2019. And The Switching ar- Yard was listed by Library Journal as one of the 30 new books that will help you rediscover poetry. Um, Huffington Post called her one of 10 Advanced Women Poets for Required Reading. Um, she has a whole bunch of other awards and books. She lives in the Pittsburgh area. And I um, hope you enjoyed this interview with Jan Beatty, and I will see you in just a little bit. Bye. Okay, well, let's start then. Um, hello, I'm, okay. with, I'm with Jan Beatty. Uh, it is uh, June 19th, and um, this is for an interview uh, for issue number 69 of Rattle, which is coming out in the fall of 2020. Um, Jan has two new books. I put the, her most recent book on the screen here um, for anybody watching at home. Um, this is Jackknife, new and selected poems by Jan Beatty. And uh, but she has two new books coming out the Body Wars and um an american bastard um, so the first thing i did, i read um, your your um, autobiography or or memoir I should say last night and yeah. um and it was a it was a i don 't know what other word to say it was kind of a mind fuck reading it because <laughs> <laughs> i read i read jackknife first, and so oh. first of all this is, it sort of has this um, the experience of um like you know there, there's that effect in movie sometimes where they start with a still photo and then all of a sudden the actors move and it becomes a film that's kind yeah. of the experience of reading one or the other the, the poems are like the 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 photos which are like the the story of a moment and then and then the um the memoir expands all those into what really happened in the in the um you know, more prosaic details and, and the backstory and the situation. Uh, and the other thing that was fascinating is that I, I read since you broke it up into two sections um, to fit the email, I happened to read yeah. the second section first. I was thinking, oh, like, oh, no, I'm not reading no. this for pleasure. So I could just start in the middle and and then, you know, jump around and uh, and I ended up reading all the way to the end. And then I read the beginning. And the funny thing is that I was thinking like, I can kind of relate to this topic, maybe. Um, And then the very, you know, because my, you know, I have, I've been estranged from my parent, from my father for such a long time, and his, his whole life is such a mystery and yeah. um and so I was like well i can kind of relate to not knowing your parents I, I was thinking and then you get and i go back to the beginning and says do not think you can relate to this and i'm like <laughs> you know what i i cannot relate to this it's so true <laughs> um it, but there's this illusion because you um you paint the picture so well like we're in that situation and there's this illusion that you can relate to it without actually having that experience um so 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 i was wondering first of all um about the memoir um why write it as a, it's sort of creative um nonfiction too with poems interspersed and it mixes back and forth and and moves around quickly like poetry does um um so so why write this book why write uh, american bastard
1: um, well i mean i was you know I was really driven to write it i mean for years and years and uh um, I know people say that a lot, like I have to write, I must write, you know, and and I I believe that, but this was different for me, uh, different than my poetry. I mean, I'm driven to write my poetry, but this was really deep. And for example, I wrote a book proposal in uh, in the year 2000 for this memoir, oh, yeah. and I just. I found it very difficult to dig into. It, it's a memoir um, focused on adoption, um, and, and and for people who, well, no one's read it yet. It's not out, but um, and uh, that's the bastard part. But I found it very difficult to um, to dig into those uh, those ideas and and do I tell this stuff, and do I reveal this stuff, and do I use names, and do I use photos? And I'm like, yeah, if I'm going to do this, I need to do this. And so I had to work through a lot, a whole lot of uh, uh, personal stuff uh, to get there And because, you know, adoption, uh, I don't believe, is the whitewash thing that the culture presents to us, and it's, it's a primary loss for the adoptee. Even if they end up in a kind of good situation, their history is erased, their name is erased, they're dislocated as an infant often, and uh, that's just the stuff that's not talked about. So um, that, And especially because I'm older, um, and I was adopted in the 50s, and it was a different thing then. I mean, still screwed up, but it was really messed up. Like, it was impossible to find out your name, it was impossible to find out where you came from. And so I didn't, I didn't learn my name till I was in my thirties, and so that was uh, walking around like, like who the fuck knows who I am, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so that was a different, very different experience. That was hard to have other people understand, you know. So I felt because it's the book that I needed as an adoptee that I could never find, and I never did find uh, because people don't want to write the dark parts they want to make a happy story Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and i'm real tired of happy stories
0: no yeah yeah well it was very eye-opening um you know just um i don't know like the idea of having that early section being erased and and sort of just destroyed with no access back to it um the thought i don't know it's something that never really occurred to me um how that must feel and what that must do to you, um, especially. I think you were you were pretty young when you were adopted, right? You were. Um...
1: I don't know the facts totally, but I think I was around a year.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and when, the... when did you find out? I think in, there's one section. You were were you six? Is is that the age that you found out? Did you know before that, at all? Or no. Did you have any inkling? It was just out of the blue.
1: Yeah, my yeah. Um, adoptive mother gave me this book. You know bringing home baby and mm-hmm. it's like, read this. And, you know, it was, like I said, it was the fifties. It wasn't a, uh, a great communicative era. <laughs> it was like, it yeah. was before most people went to therapy, but mm-hmm. I, I sure could have used it. But, um, so that's when I found out. Mm-hmm. And my sister was adopted from another, another place,
0: mm-hmm. but yeah. 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 The fifties were, messed up times it seems like my my family has these um, skeletons in their closet that nobody even knows what they are you just know that nobody talks to each other yeah. <laughs> and and no you know and for you know, nobody goes nobody's going to each other's funerals and nobody knows why and, um, yeah. and it's definitely a time of, of silence and like uh, oh it's not it's not healthy it was not a healthy time and a healthy a healthy way to be human beings I don't think um
1: no and and Still, there's, as you know, there's plenty of people who don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not easy to communicate. So, you know, nobody wants to. Everybody wants to be liked, and that's a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 it definitely is. Um, uh, one of the things that I love too about the memory, I, I've been familiar with your poems for a long time, um, and the thing I always loved about them is your honesty. There's a sense of just authenticity that that rings through. That the that the dialogue and the speaker is telling the truth that's kind of how it always feels and um and so i love the moments in the memoir where um your um your birth parents would say something sort of unpleasant and how much you you mentioned how much you appreciated the fact that it was honest even though it wasn't something that you would have wanted to hear um can you talk a little bit about about um how honesty fits into your work and and just your your values as a as a writer and a human being
1: um, sure. I mean, I think, I think everything um, goes back to being adopted. Really, I mean that that's the core of things for me. And you know, if you, you know, if I'm brought up not knowing my name, not knowing where I come from, so being raised with lies, you know, mm-hmm. um, and. Then when I meet my birth parents, they're telling me lies or they won't tell me. So the truth becomes really important, you Mm -hmm. know, to me. And uh, so it's because it's a search for the truth. So if I'm going to write poetry, I've always um, wanted a sense of the authentic. Well, having said that, though, you know, a lot of my poetry is not, you know, true, Mm -hmm. you know, true story, you know, a number many of my poems are just made you know made up
2: yeah mm-hmm. you know
1: not not didn't really happen of course
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah P- parts of them did uh, parts of them are actual happenings but um, uh, but the truth of feeling is really what I want and like you said I'm really attached to um, dialogue and having that sound authentic and I think part of that is um, also, from wanting a sense of truth, but also being raised working class with my adoptive family. My dad was a steelworker, um, and I uh, I really, really loved him, and, you know, I, I love the way people talk. I mm-hmm. mean, people are, people to me are the best. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of people, but walk out on any day and you have a story right in front of you Mm -hmm. and so listening and and listening to how people talk I mean and again going back to the adoption stuff that's how I survived you know was early on was listening because I was trying to be this perfect kid so that I would be accepted you know Mm -hmm. and and so I had to watch people like how do you do this like I don't know I was afraid of being sent back, afraid of everything, and so I was trying to be this perfect, freaky kid, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's how that happened. But yeah, I mean, and you know, of course, you know, I'm not some, you know, bastion of honesty. You know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just a regular person. and I, you know, fuck up things on a regular basis. But you know, it it, it, it is important to me. Mm-hmm.
0: You know? um um, how did you get into into writing poetry in the first place um do you have a story of of where you're sort of introduced to it and you started doing it yourself was it way back um in that attic that you mentioned um in in the memoir or um was it more recent how did that come to happen
1: oh it was way back yeah. yeah i um i uh i had to have somewhere to go you know it's not like my uh my situation was so terrible um with my adoptive parents, and yet i I felt uh lost and afraid most of the time but um so I needed a place to go, and uh books and writing became it early on i mean i I won the poetry contest in first grade, oh yeah, and it's <laughs> like yeah, do you you still was, have do you still have the poem? No, I yeah. wish I did though. but I but I remember it's about it was about floating away on a cloud, and so I was trying to escape, which is a lot of my poems are writing about the same thing still. Um, so that that was always uh, that and music really I feel like saved me, but mm-hmm. but poetry was from the beginning, and I would write, you know, bad poems in my diaries, locked diaries under the bed, bad relationship poems, all that stuff, uh, and yet, you know when i um I was the first one in my family to go to college my my adoptive parents didn't finish high school um 'cause it 'cause of the times you know it was it was a depression and uh my dad had to work but um so I was the first one to go to college and in college I took no writing classes at all because I felt like you know, I had this great honor to go to college and mm-hmm. I and and it is a great honor. And and I all I could think of was don't fuck this up and you better get a job. You mm-hmm. know, that's all I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. and, write, and writing I felt like writing was for other people. Writing was for people with money. Mm-hmm. I didn't know these people, but I felt like <laughs> it wasn't for me. I mean I wanted to do it but I felt like oh I couldn't I mm-hmm. couldn't do
0: it. Was there something yeah. that sort of gave you permission to do it at some point? Did, did anything happen? Uh, for me, I, I, um, I kind of had a similar experience. I was the first person, I think, in my family to go to college. And um, I felt I was a molecular biology major. And, um, and I thought, you know, I would, I would help save the world from coronaviruses and things like that. And, um, and then I read Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and um and i was dual majoring in both and hating all my lab work and um and just not liking the science it was just so monotonous i guess and just you know the the original impetus of understanding how the world works is fascinating but then once you get into the minutiae it's just sort of memorizing tables and charts and uh and um and then so i read zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and and they they and um there's some line about how um everybody's trying to to um extend life and make ourselves make humans live longer but um but the real problem is why like why live longer (laughs) why live a life you know and that's the, the deeper question than than the science itself and so that sort of gave me permission to sort of veer off in this direction. I said, you know what? There are more important questions than um, how to stop a virus from spreading through, although it seems pretty important right now. Right now um, we could use you, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but but so was there anything like that for you that gave you permission to um, take it more seriously and take yourself seriously as a writer?
1: Oh, sure, sure. But before we leave that, I think you need to write that essay, an essay about that. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, moving sure, from... Yeah. Molecular biology to Zen (laughs) and the art of motorcycle maintenance to now, I would write that essay. Yeah,
0: it was a strange journey for sure. Yeah, (laughs) and And then I ended up here, which I did not expect at all either. But
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah, I would write that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I started out uh, in college in um, physical education Mm
2: -hmm.
1: because, uh, and that was before I knew my birth father was a, a hockey player, professional hockey player. And and, uh, a lot of this stuff is in my memoir, but I would always hit things. You know, I was hitting things growing Mm -hmm. up and (laughs) smashing things. And I was on the, you know, uh, softball team, volleyball team, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, that became, made more sense when I found out about my birth father. But um, So I started out in phys ed, and then I went into nursing, then I went into journalism, and then I got a degree in social work because I thought, same kind of thing, I, I wanted to do something good, um, help people, uh, and I and I uh, had a couple of jobs. I worked as a social worker f- for five years out, uh, in uh, maximum security prisons and um, an abortion clinic, uh, the welfare office, and I was, you know, kind of challenging places, but I was pretty bad at it. And I, <laughs> I was just too emotional. You know, I would, I would cry all the time with my clients. It was just not what you're supposed to do. And uh...
0: Yeah, yeah. That's one thing that I did, too. I was a counselor for uh, mentally ill adults for about four years. And um, it was so hard not to get burned out just on the, you know, you, you sort of bring their grief and trauma into yourself. And then um, just so many people couldn't, couldn't. I couldn't either, I don't think. If, I, if I'd stuck with it, I don't know how long I would have lasted either.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you really have to be a special person, you have to learn how to have those boundaries, but I,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I it was not right, I was not right for it, but, um, so then I sort of gave up, sort of like you you said, gave up on any cultural idea of success, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, fuck it, you know, I'm going to write, <laughs> and I became a waitress, mm-hmm. you know, for 15 years, and started writing and writing and joining these writing groups, and taking one class at a time at the University of Pittsburgh at night and and so that's what that's what I did and and there was one professor who said to me well why don't you go to grad school and I said oh I don't, I don't think I could go to grad school and and he said why why can't you cuz you're a good writer you're getting A's why can't can't you go I, and I'm like uh, I don't know because um, I just had this mindset you know mm-hmm. I had this working class mindset like oh I could never be able to do that. And then when I went to grad school, um, started out in Iowa, um, and, uh, and that's when I sort of gave myself permission Mm -hmm. to, to write. And, and so that was, that was a good time.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Um, and the reason why we're doing this issue, um, or this interview now is, um, you, you, Send us some poems and and I never knew that in your in your note you mentioned that you've been a waitress for 15 years and this issue that the interview is going to appear in as a tribute to service workers so we've just gone through and selected about 20 poems or, or 18 I think by service workers um, you know waiters waitresses um, you know housekeeper um, cooks line cooks dishwashers things like that and um, it's really a wonderful I, I, I'm looking forward to sharing this issue with everybody it was my yeah. favorite reading in a while the uh, rattle was really founded as a way to have a home for um for writers who aren't part of the academic world mm-hmm. and um and it sort of feel like going back to our roots a little bit because um it's just so fun to hear people's stories from um regular life and to hear that perspective of somebody you know working at a mall kiosk or um and 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 it and and poets are everywhere too which is an amazing thing um but can you talk a little about about how um you know, working as a waitress for that long, um, did that influence your work a lot? I know you mentioned you love dialogue and and authenticity. (laughs) And I just imagine that you're eavesdropping on so many conversations and learning the craft of dialogue maybe through that. Is that just my imagination or do you think that's true?
1: I think it's totally true. I mean, I feel like I learned the most really as a waitress more than any other time. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, I mean, I feel like you learn the most from people and uh, I had to, I had to really learn how to um, control my tables. You know, <laughs> deal with difficult situations, not let anyone push me around. Mm-hmm. I mean, that those are some serious skills, and um, I got really good at it. And I. I really liked it. I mean, Mm. it was, you know, I don't want to romanticize it too much. It's hard work and it's uh, challenging, but I love the uh, movement of it. I love like going from table to table. I, I was fired from many, many waitress jobs. Mm. And, (laughs) uh, for, I always had trouble with, um, my bosses Mm -hmm. and, um, I still have authority problems. (laughs) I feel like, I feel like I, okay, I guess that's never going to go away, but, uh, Mm. but, um, (laughs) but, and, you know, owners hitting on me, uh, and other waitresses, you know, mm-hmm. um, um I, one time I worked at the steak and ale for one day and I was complaining to the owner about the, the uniforms we were wearing, which, you know, short skirts and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, low cut stuff. And he's like, um, you know, why don't you quit? I'm like, yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. I will. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've just, uh, but I found a great place. It was a jazz club in Pittsburgh called uh, The Balcony,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and run by some really great, great guys. And so I was there for like 10 years, and they had uh, live music every night, um, live jazz. It was such a great place. And so then hearing that music and moving around, and it was such a, uh, I, I really, really loved it, you know, and I mean, I was, I was never the waitress who made the most money because mm-hmm. I wasn't willing to be that nice. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I was willing, really, I would do a good job and I would get the stuff out there. I would get the people what they want, but I'm not going to kiss your ass, you know. <laughs>
2: yeah. So,
1: but, you know, but I love waitresses and waiters and I love, all, you know, the service people should get all the money. hmm and they're really hurting right now, as you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. It's a, definitely a very difficult time for, for anybody in um, any kind of related industry to anything public. Um, yeah. Um, it, but it's hard not to remember. Like, imagining you in a jazz club. Um, <laughs> what an environment for a creative person, though. I mean, you know, how many stories come out of that? And how and, 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 and jazz, too, is just such a, um, I don't know, it makes your brain flow, you know? It makes the blood oh, move. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: It was great, man. It was really a, a great time. I mean, I was—I mean, it's in—it's in my books. But I have a lot of drugs and alcohol in my in my past, and um, I've been in recovery for a while. But it, I definitely don't want to romanticize that. But but back then, I was drinking and mm-hmm. doing all kinds of things. so It was this wild time, and which was good for a while, and then it wasn't good, mm-hmm. you know. How that yeah. goes, mm-hmm. but uh, so when when I was younger, but um, yeah, learned learned a whole lot then, and like, but they had some great. They brought in out of town uh, groups like that. Stanley Stanley Clark was there, mm-hmm. the modern that. modern jazz quartet. You know, mm-hmm. you know, every, you know, not every night, but you know, maybe once every couple of months, someone really big would come in. So it was it was an education about jazz too. So mm-hmm. it was it was really great. I should have more waitress poems. I just have a couple, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You should. Um, but but um, so, did you? I'm wondering, did you envision um, becoming who you are now? Like, was that a goal that you had as you were working as a waitress? Um, you know, I mean, now you're the director of a creative writing program, and um, you've published I, I don't seven books, I think, is if you include what's coming up. Um, um, did you Did you sort of see yourself doing that, and that you were working toward that, or were you just focused on your writing and um, and how did you make the transition, too? Like, was it just a gradual process, or, did, or were you pursuing that?
1: Um, I really was focused on my writing. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. my whole thing. Uh, no, I didn't have a plan. I didn't go to grad school to get a job. I, after that, I was done with the job thing. But no. um, I, um, I, my goal was never to teach. My goal was, no... And it's so it's kind of bizarre how this happened, hmm. you know I mean uh, I mean, I don't want to you know sound naive about it because I know a lot of people would love to have a, a job in academia, but and and I'm grateful for it, but um, yeah, I never saw myself teaching, hmm. but then when I started doing it as an adjunct, I was an adjunct for like ten years
2: uh-huh.
1: but I was okay with that because I was waitressing and adjuncting and writing and. That seemed okay to me. I know everyone hates to be an adjunct, but I didn't, you know, because I was waitressing. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, what happened, uh, and this is a sad thing, is is that uh, one of my teachers, um, Patricia Dobler, who was a wonderful poet and who... uh, she was just great. She had a, uh, a number of books, uh, talking to strangers. She won the Brittingham Prize. Anyway, she ran the Mad Women in the Attic at Carlo University, and I was a Mad Woman for a while. I was her student there,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, she died um, too young. You know, she died too young, um, and uh, when she died, um, they called me and asked asked me if I would consider covering some classes, some Madwoman mm-hmm. classes. I said, yeah. And then then I just kept going, and then I covered some more classes, and it just kind of grew. And um, I don't know, it just evolved. And and when it came time for, you know, getting a job, job, directing the program, I, that same thing came up for me. Like, I, I remember talking to Lynn Emanuel, who was one of my teachers from way back, and I was a good friend of Pat's. I said, "I said I don't think I can do this." I said, "I don't think I can run, <laughs> run a program." And she said, "Why can't you?" I said, "I don't know, but it's like <laughs> I don't think I can." And she's like, "Shut up, Jan! Just just do it." You know, it's like, <laughs> and you know, I, I you know, I I didn't have confidence in. I'm not an acad-
2: mm-hmm. I
1: I am in academia, but I feel like my heart is still. You know, is big is still working class and mm-hmm. so i feel like i i do a lot of community work and i feel like i'm split that way and but i love the combination of those i feel like bringing the community into academia which the mad women in the attic does and uh you know bringing uh academia out doing readings in the community i think so important mm-hmm. so that that makes me happy yeah. but i don't i I am not an academic in my head or in my body, so mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Yeah. I guess I got lucky. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel too. Like the, I wonder though if everybody in the world has imposter syndrome. You know, like yeah, is you that just wonder. The way, like the, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I do. And um, you know, walking around, is everybody sort of just faking it until they kind of forget that they're <laughs> faking it? I kind of get the impression a lot that. Um, that that everybody is just like has no idea what's going on and is just trying <laughs> to, to make it seem like they do. At least I hope that is because, um, you, you know, I, I, I like to uh, have control over my world and, um, and I don't. Oh so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, well, well, the people who think they, they plan everything out and know what's coming. I, I don't usually trust them anyway. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> Uh, before we move on from the, from the, um, service work kind of stuff, do you have any advice for people who might, um, you know, be working in those careers and, and want to, you know, have a dream of, um, becoming, you know, an author is the focus of their career, whether that would be through teaching or just writing, writing books, or do you have any advice for people like that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, the advice I always give, it sounds really simple, but, um, I always tell people there's one secret only and that is don't quit. Mm-hmm. It's like no matter what happens, no matter what happens, just keep writing. Mm-hmm. You're not getting you're getting all these rejections, keep writing. You know, you haven't gotten your book yet, keep writing. Uh, you don't have a job yet, keep writing. Um, you can't see what's going to happen. You, you just have to keep doing it. I mean, keep reading and writing. And I I mean, I'm an optimist. I mean, I I just believe over time, it may, it may take a lot longer than you want, mm-hmm. but over time uh, good work will be seen. I believe that. It may not be seen by the person you want it to be seen by and definitely not when, but um, you just have to keep going and do it for the love of it and and, and uh, hang out with people who feel the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I believe good things will happen. I mean, um, if you keep just keep going. And uh, have a good heart about it, but I don't know because it's you know it's it's I'm Ed Ochester who's my editor, told, told me something on. Well, he's given me a lot of good advice, but he told me one time he said, look, he said, uh, um, being a poet and having books published, you could you could rise to the top of your field, and be. The most famous you could, and no one in the world is going to know who the fuck you are. <laughs> it's, like,
0: <laughs> it's true. <laughs>
1: and he said, said, don't worry about it." Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Yeah, that's true. <laughs> this is just what it is, and uh, you have to do it because you want to."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've always felt that too. That that you know, when people ask me that question, I think persist. Like, if 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 successful writers have one thing in common, what is it? And it's persistence. Um, yeah. And I think oftentimes that comes from. Um, like the, just the drive to write, like like the people who are successful are driven to write, which makes them be persistent, which makes them be successful. I kind of think that's the dynamic that's usually at play. And I was wondering, I, I was talking to somebody, I can't remember who it was recently, but they said that every, I can't remember how they put it either. I think it was on one of the, the Rattlecast episodes though. Um, but they said that every poet or every author they think um, has like an, one question that drives them and they can't let go. And that's why they keep writing and can't stop writing because they're trying to figure out the answer to this question or mystery. And it's sort of the one central compelling theme that drives their whole career. Do you think that that's true? Um, and, and if so, what would your theme be? Would it be the adoption?
1: Um, I, I guess I tend to think it's more like two or three major obsessions mm-hmm. that drive people um i never thought of it as one uh but in like in my books i mean i've just noticed over time i i haven't you know set out to do things a certain way but i've noticed that i keep writing about i keep writing about the body mm-hmm. you know over and over and i'm i i guess that's because i didn't know whose body it was for mm-hmm. a long time
2: yeah
1: uh, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, drugs and it's not that I have a lot of drug poems but drugs in the street, you know, just, um, you know, what happens, what really happens, you know, I'm interested in, in what happens outside of the house on the street, what's going on. So with real people, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and then, you know, it's usually sex it's not like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but I have some music. I have some music poems. Mm-hmm. So I have some, uh, when I usually separate my poems and see, um, I have a lot of father poems.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have, and I keep writing poems about my father, my adoptive father, um, because um, I guess if I had one question, it would be what what enables you to stay alive? Mm-hmm. What what makes you feel like this is worth it in uh you know, I feel like everyone needs to have one person mm-hmm. who, you know, you don't need a lot of people, but you need to have one person who who saw you or who helped you. And that was my, my adoptive father. And thank God for him, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know what would have happened, you know, but he helped me. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, he died in 1986. It was so long ago. Oh, wow. And yet I'm still writing these poems. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I, and I said to myself, stop it, you know, like, <laughs> but it, you know, things, things keep coming and coming and he's such a, I feel like he's such a part of who I am and, uh, you know, whatever comes out is, you know, see what happens. But, um, so I think that's, that's for me, I, you know, you notice people, you know, returning to the same mm-hmm. ideas, but hopefully, I mean, hopefully going deeper, hopefully going different places with it and with more skill and, Complication and, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 um, it's so bizarre. I mean, how I think a lot of us don't know what we're doing, like you said, (laughs) (laughs) but but like I look back on my first book, Mad River, and it starts with a poem about my conception, Mm -hmm. which seems really narcissistic (laughs) and, and ridiculous, but, but at the time, I swear to God, I don't know how, I, maybe I was in such denial or something. At the time, I wasn't aware that I was doing that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh well, my God. It's like...
0: <laughs> well, Whit, Whitman-esque, I think, you know. <laughs> I
1: don't know. That's a, that's a generous, generous thing to say.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, well, it seems to me like, just reading it, I was thinking about, you know, what, you know, what you're grappling with maybe. And it seemed like it is the the maybe like the inability to escape the body that we're forced to live in, like the fact that we can't escape it, you know? And then there's all these things that are trying to escape it and then trying to reconcile the fact that you can't, you know, and that you have this one life where you're stuck in this thing that you've been given outside of your control completely. That sort of seems like it to me.
1: Yeah. Is is that what is the theme for you?
0: No, for your books, for reading through. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, for reading through the for Jackknife and um, and then the next book is The Body War. Do you want to talk a little bit about what um, The Body War is about?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, thinking about the progression of my work, I I felt like I mean, just with the covers, like the first Mad River, you have this floating body going up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> someone said to me, Oh, the body's ascending into heaven, and I'm like, "Yeah, you haven't read my work." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then the second, the second uh, one, "Bone Shaker." The body's kind of dissolving, and a lot of the, a lot of those poems are about leaving the body and mm-hmm. dissociation, and just, just having a tough time, just being in the body, and mm-hmm. then. Uh, Red Sugar, it feels like, you know, the third, my third book, it feels like it, there was a lot of sexuality in that and connection with the body. And then and then Switching Wars, my fourth book, it, I wrote a lot of that on trains going to Canada and back and forth. And it was related to my birth father, who was a Canadian hockey player and uh, who won three Stanley Cups. But um, And so I felt like this, this Body Wars, I feel like it's the first time that, the body's here, you know. It's here, and uh, um, there's a a head on the on the front of the on the cover, uh, and, and and yet there's still wars within the body. Because um, I just keep coming out to California <laughs> over and over. I'll be back, but. Um, I moved out to California three times in my twenties. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. with bad results, and, <laughs> and uh, so I just keep. I'm just drawn. I just keep going and going and going, and that's that's good for me. I'm just going out west, but there's, so there's a lot of west in the book, and uh, there's a lot of conf- there's a lot of conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some some poems about um, asylum and you know um, trouble trouble in the world i mean there's a there's a poem called the anniversary of uh, on the anniversary of charlottesville which is so dated before it even comes out
2: mm-hmm. with all
1: everything that's been happening
2: yeah, yeah.
1: And, uh, you know spike lee's in there robert muller's in there and it's like <laughs> who you know it's like so much has happened
0: and... yeah the world is just um i think i don't remember who so it, calls it the quickening but we're in the quickening; like this things are changing so fast. Um, oh, just the just everything is changing so fast. We can't keep up. Yeah. 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 When was the last time anybody even mentioned Robert Mueller? <laughs> I know. I, I haven't heard that his name spoken in in you know a year or two. I think, and then it, it was nothing but Mueller and the Mueller report for for years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I was thinking about. Um, it's just fascinating, this idea that, um, from the, from the memoir that your, your birth parents were inside of you, you know, that there's the blue dress, that story. That scared
1: um, me when you said that, <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead. No.
0: And then, and then the, that the, your, your father was a hockey player and then, and that you, you know, loved spending all day, yeah. you know, hitting balls against the brick wall of your house and, and how, um, like, how do you think that that happens? Uh, do you have any, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think, I mean, it's, the universe is such an amazing, mysterious place, but that, that story of the, your red and blue dress, I don't know if you want, can you share that? Would you mind?
1: Oh, sure. Um, yeah. When I, it took me a long time to find my birth mother, about 10 years. Um, and when I, and then I, found her through Catholic Social Services and she didn't want to see me and then she did want to see me and then anyway we had a half-hour meeting a 40-minute meeting and I was waitressing at the time I had two dresses back then a red dress and a blue dress I decided to wear the red dress and when I went in to meet her she had the blue dress on exact same dress and it wasn't like it was some common dress I mean it was a dress with this little you know tan um, string belt you know that she had and I had and that really freaked me out and (laughs) and I told her I had that same dress and she said you're kidding I'm like no and then I in the memoir it's in the memoir I asked her I had the same shoes she was wearing I said you know where did you get those shoes and she told me and I had them same ones and it's just too strange. And I, and I said, is this some bizarre genetic code that, you know, d- yeah. determines your fashion sense? It's, mm-hmm. it's really it's kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, I, I, could rela- I could relate to her. I mean, you know, not totally, but at least I saw something. Mm-hmm. I saw something. I felt like I looked a little bit like her. I, I liked the way she talked. She was a little rough. She was a little tough. A little mm-hmm. rough, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, Pittsburgh accent, and uh, but I really liked her and uh, like her, mm-hmm. uh, although we don't have a relationship. But um, and uh, you know, this stuff, yeah, I mean, I really believe in the power of blood. Everyone wants to make it about, oh, you know, we've adopted you, you're so lucky, Where are your parents now. I'm like, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, I have blood running through me that you don't even know about. Yeah,
2: yeah. And
1: that and that blood, I mean, I'm ruthlessly competitive. You know, still, I mean, I can't play sports like I used to, but you know, I I would just want to kill someone like on a racquetball court, mm-hmm. and, and you know, it's, it's not friendly, but that's uh-huh. just who I was, who I am, and and I was so relieved to find out, you know about my birth father, I'm like, oh, it makes mm-hmm. sense. And I, um, like I was a designated hitter on the um, softball team because mm-hmm. all I wanted to do was smack <laughs> the shit out of yeah. thing. And, mm-hmm. and my my adoptive parents were like, what is wrong with you? Like, why are you doing this? I'm like, <laughs> leave me alone. I'm, like, <laughs> so, you know, I believe in the power of blood. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people want to discount that for some reason mm-hmm. They they want to take the baby, move the baby over here. Okay, yeah. now you're this person's baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is insanity, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, there's so many things. It's just one example of many things in this world where we sort of base our opinions about what we want to believe and what feels better. And the idea that um, somebody who is moved to a new home and adopted, like, fits in seamlessly, and it's really not about the blood at all, and not about whatever epigenetic memory or, or whatever is going on in the in the Amazing, crazy universe that we're inhabiting. Um, people don't want to think about uncomfortable things like that, um, and uh, and that's what really comes through so clearly in this in the memoir. And it's really it's a one of the books I'm gonna you know it's very memorable. I'm gonna think about that a lot. Um, um, oh, thank you. Uh, do you, do you, one thing I was wondering: Were you like you, you mentioned that you liked your mother? Um, was, was she? My birth mother. Your birth mother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was she somehow um, something that you wouldn't have envisioned? Like, is it you were wishing she was like that—that that she would wear the same dress as you and have that <laughs> kind of attitude? Oh no, um, no, no, no. What What did you think going in? Like, what did you expect, or or what did you um, imagine it to be like?
1: I had nothing. I, I had no, no image,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or no desire. I just wanted a face and a story and a name.
2: Yeah.
1: No, I didn't have any of that in my head. No, and I didn't want... I wasn't looking for a family. I wasn't looking for anything nice. You know, I didn't want a a new family where we could, uh, you know, exchange birthday presents and send cards. I wanted to find out who I was. And that was the driving question. And... No, so I had no idea, and I was kind of trying to prepare myself for bad things, like, mm-hmm. like she, well, I mean, she, she wasn't that happy to see me, you know. She, I was like the nightmare from the past, but mm-hmm. um, but I I was preparing myself for things like what if she's crazy? What if she? I mean, and these are things you need to prepare yourself for as adoptees, like what if she? is awful what if Mm. she hates me what if she's sick what if she wants money from me you know etc etc other things people can be on the on the dark side of things um so I was thinking more like general things like that like I hope she's not really awful you know (laughs) (laughs) so I was happy that she that I liked her Mm -hmm. so my my bar was low I mean (laughs) I just wanted what Although it was hard to get. I just wanted my name. I wanted the story. And I didn't get that story for a long time. She wouldn't give it to me. Mm-hmm. She would not tell me uh, what happened. And uh, and I, it took me a lot more years to really push her forward. Because it's a hard situation to be in. It's hard to imagine that you're meeting this person who is whose body you came out of and you don't even know them. And then you want to pressure them for something. It's it's a strange situation. I didn't have the confidence uh, to push her for a while. I was just overwhelmed with the whole thing. Um, but I I mean my one hope is that is that my book would help uh, would help adoptees mm-hmm. who don't so they don't feel as alone because it's really a lonely feeling like. Like not knowing anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't have an, a mission for the book, but uh, you know. But I just uh, like. I have no idea how people will respond. Like adoptive parents might hate it. I don't know, but mm-hmm. um, I don't
0: know. Yeah. Well it's it's honest and, and I think um you kinda have to be honest and let the chips fall where they may or in, in life or else you're not doing anything meaningful, I think. Yeah. so yeah, well it, it really it's a it's a powerful and, and memorable book, uh for me. Okay. So so thanks for sharing. I'm glad I got to read it ahead of time. Um, um let's see. One thing we haven't talked about much is, is just um, writing technique in general. Um, and, and you've taught for a long time. What What is your advice? Do you have sort of rules of writing that you do? Like, what is your process like, and, and how do you give that advice to students? Yeah.
1: Um, well, my process is, um, you know, and this is, this is challenging right now because a lot of times I write on the road Mm and I I leave town all the time and I can't, can't really do it right now, but I write on the road. As soon as I get on an airplane, I start writing. And so I'm, I'm panicking a little now, but, um, so I write out of town. I write, you know, I go, I go away. I feel like I need to get away. Um, I mean, that's always been something for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I I have all these notebooks, a whole lot of notebooks. And I just start writing, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever comes to me or just start with any kind of lists of things. And then usually something comes up, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, I have, I keep all these lists, like I have a list now of probably about 40 things that I should write about and just like little notes, Write a poem about this, write about this, write about this, but they're particular things, you know. and then if if I you know, if I'm sitting down to write, sometimes I'll go through that list, and if I feel something, I'll go mostly by feeling if I feel something, when I get to something, I'll try to do some free writing about that, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, keep writing until I can't write anymore and try not to censor myself. Mm-hmm. You know, if the writing goes some crazy place, try to keep going until I can't write anymore. And then try to s- set it down, because I don't want to try to make it into something right away. It's just mm. like, put it down. And I have all these <laughs> journals, so crazy. I don't even know where they all are, but okay. Um, okay. So then um, then I'll go through them and then try, I don't know, whenever, e- you know how this is. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm more in a generating phase or more in a uh, revising and I'll go and find some of those big hunks of stuff and try to find a see if there's a poem there mm-hmm. and start working on it more. And that's really it. I mean, I, I I'm a big fan of you know Levitov's you know organic form. I mean, what what evolves, what the poem tells you it needs to be, and try not to decide too early what that is. You know, mm-hmm. just like. You know, later, later. You know what rises up. Like once you see if there, once I see if there's a poem there, then, oh, okay. Later, then, okay. I, maybe this might work as a six line stanza poem. Mm-hmm. But I try not to put that stuff on it too soon. And I mean, I, any kind of poetry is great. But I'm but for me, for my taste. Uh, and my sensibilities, I'm not a big form person. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm like, great, if that works for someone. But I feel restricted. I feel restricted, like, really easily. Uh-huh. Almost anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I don't want anyone to tell me to do anything. I mean, it's its a problem. But so <laughs> so that's that's what works for me. But then, and then I show it to somebody. Mm-hmm. my I'm really lucky to have... Uh, my main reader is Judith Vollmer, who is a great poet, and she lives two blocks away, and we get together and and share share poems. Her uh, her latest book is My Apollonia. She has, like, five books, but mm-hmm. um, she... I think
0: that um, in your process, I've always felt like, because, um, you know, talking to poets all these years, it seems like everybody is trying to find a way to sort of meditate or something as they're writing. And to to pull things out of their subconscious and so to do that, you sort of have to shut your consciousness off. Um, and, and that's why how you can be surprised and how, learn things about yourself. Do you, do you resonate with that? Is that the kind of process you're describing?
1: Oh yeah, I think that's one reason I I try to leave to get to a new place where I have to wake up a little just to walk mm-hmm. around.
0: Yeah, oh, that's a good wake. expression yeah yeah
1: yeah. just wake myself up you know, pay attention, pay attention, and take some books with me, start taking notes, you know, yeah, I love that, I love that, or I'll I'll just, yeah, read other people's work, maybe start with someone else's line and start doing something, and that line may then never appear in the poem, but, or I'll try to imitate a poem. This one time I was, (laughs) I was, I was at McDowell, which, um, years ago, and, and uh I was trying to um I'm not too good in the woods. I mean I know it's a great place, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not good in the woods and um <laughs> I'm a city person but but um so I was uh a little freaked out, and i was so i was I thought I'm gonna imitate a poem by d a Powell and Wanda Coleman and like jam them together that was, that was, <laughs> that was, I was spending too much time alone. That was my idea. <laughs> Uh-huh. and i didn't know what that meant but i was just like so i kept reading the reading them back and forth back and forth and then to try to write something and and i got a poem and i showed it to both of them later and they said this <laughs> they both said this is nothing like our work like, <laughs> i said well is it okay if i say this is written after reading your work because i i felt like i had taken something from them, mm-hmm. and they said, "This has nothing to do with us." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, but I mean, I need to. I I need to start with something, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and then jump and and often then I don't. I jump to something that is very different. Um, mm-hmm. But but with my students, I mean, I'm really intense about craft and um, talking about poems in terms of craft and. I I try to get us like in class not to talk about content which is kind of hard unless there's some confusion or something and we want to know do you mean this or this or something but other than that I you know want to talk about line break and you know you know image or whatever and what is this doing for this this stanza or something or what how's this working and practicing like it's easy to say how, how something isn't working. You know, mm-hmm. tell me why this is successful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they they get irritated with me. But it's like, you know, I'm like, well, let's get back to craft. Well, let's get back to craft. Because that's the whole thing, I think. I mean, you can't tell people how to write.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, they have to find something in themselves. Um, but you can... When they bring you when they bring you something when there's a piece you're looking at you can talk about uh, what's making it work what's what's driving it mm-hmm. yeah. I mean I, that's how I teach more that way mm-hmm. um, and if we write critical papers they're focused on craft and they're not allowed to, that sounds terrible but they're not they're not allowed to talk about content mm-hmm yeah. And but I, but I think it's a it's a really important discipline to be able to recognize what's what and how to separate them and talk about them. Hmm. I mean, it'll it helps. It really helps to be able to to. to it's not going to hurt your aesthetic, and it's not going to hurt your love of poetry. But just to dig in and see how things are moving around, you know. Oh.
0: Yeah, that that's interesting. I think that's great. That's something I haven't really heard very often. But um, but. Dividing the two up, I think, is a great a great thing to think about, for sure. Um, I, I've heard, I think, I read or or saw somewhere that you're a big reviser and that you re- revise your poems over over many years. Um, and you mentioned that, that American Bastard, the memoir, was from 2000. Um, what what do you um, how do you approach revision? Uh, what what are you what are you looking to do, and and how do you go about that process?
1: Um. Well, I used to I used to really hate revision. Until, like with my second book, Bone Shaker, I thought I had come up with some really good new ways of writing, and I turned it in to University of Pittsburgh Press, and, and I met with Ed Ochester, and he said, these new poems are not good. Hmm. And I, <laughs> wow. and he, he said, this is about half done. I'm like, oh. And, and I didn't even understand what he was saying at the time. I didn't understand why why they weren't working, and I was, I was upset, and, but I took it back, it took me two years to revise it, because it took, I had to, um, I had to sort of grow as as a poet, I wasn't ready, you know, and once, thank God he stopped me, because once I got it, I'm like, okay, those poems aren't good, <laughs> but I couldn't, I couldn't see it, and so I think it's good to write slowly, and revise slowly, you don't want to put anything out there that's not good. But mm-hmm. you don't think is good, and um, so m- I mean, my a lot of my uh, processes is, is waiting <laughs> and, go, yeah. and going, going, going mm-hmm. back to something, and and showing it to some readers, mm-hmm. and uh, and then reconsidering, and trying some new ways, showing it to readers again, and mm-hmm. and really trying to. Just open my mind and saying, "Am I being stubborn, mm-hmm. or am I stuck on this, or what is real?" You know, because that takes a while to figure out. And then some of some of it is uh, not being mature enough as a, a person. Like for some of the prison poems I wrote, for example, mm-hmm. I wasn't mature enough to know what the hell happened in the prison. I couldn't oh, yeah. mm-hmm. find a way to write about it. So, I mean, the one prison poem in Bone Shaker. It took me 20 years to write. Yeah. I mean, not because I was trying to revise it for 20 years. I just couldn't... I didn't know what happened, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it took me a while. So, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for waiting until until you've matured as a human or... I mean, I'm a big believer in therapy. You know, I go to therapy all the time. I need therapy. Mm -hmm. I believe everyone should go to therapy. I I really do Mm -hmm. because it can help everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um and that's I don't think my books would have evolved without it cuz I I had to understand what was going on in the poems. Mm-hmm. I mean I don't work on my poems in therapy, you know. Yeah, yeah. But but things about life that inform the poems I had to learn. Mm-hmm. difficult lessons. You do, you, know.
0: do you think um the act of writing poetry is a kind of therapy? Because I think you know from what I've read about um, how therapy works. Um, it, the, the, the main benefit comes from being able to articulate your experiences that are inarticulatable kind of, and, and having them contained in that way that you can sort of control and put outside yourself, which always strikes me as exactly what poetry is doing. Um, do you think there's something to that or, or not?
1: You said from what I've read about therapy, it sounds like you haven't been to therapy. <laughs> is no,
0: it? I have not been to therapy. I don't I've, go. Um, now's, I, your you know. now's your time. time to go. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. go. <laughs> I could
0: probably use it, but <laughs>
1: um, well, no, I think it's absolutely not therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely not. Um, you know, this. These are just my feelings about it. But therapy is. Um, to me, is is going really deep and, uh, um, over time and, you know, visiting, you know, depending on what therapy you're doing, Mm -hmm. if you're going way back or you're dealing with right now or whatever, but visiting what's happening and just, yeah, talking about it and, um, moving forward, making progress, um, uh. That's not what I'm doing at poetry. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I really haven't... I have an issue with poetry as therapy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: actually. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe in it. I think it's really important to have poetry not be therapy. I mean, someone might write a poem and feel some kind of relief or release, and then I suggest they go to therapy and work on it. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> but... And... Um, no, I feel like the poem is the poem. I mean, you have to serve the poem. You're not mm-hmm. serving some kind of thing that happened in your life. You're serving the poem. You know, maybe maybe in your life you work something out this way, but that doesn't work in the poem, mm-hmm. and this is not autobiography. So um, it's what does a poem need? That's the question, not what do you need. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, very different.
0: Yeah, yeah, back to that craft versus content yeah. thing, which... Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is interesting, though, that um, you know like poetry so so you think very clearly of your poems as um, um, medium to give to somebody else right like you're you're thinking are you thinking of readers as you're writing and revising them to, you know and they're what they're going to get out of it no i'm not no
1: uh-uh um no i try not to think about the readers um i try to think about the poem
2: mm-hmm.
1: i mean seriously i i'm I'm trying to get inside the poem and see how it's working. What does it need? I mean, to think about the feelings in the poem, the workings of the poem. I mean, I might think sometimes I think this is horribly depressing. (laughs) Will anyone want to read this? But Mm -hmm. no, I'm not trying to serve the reader
0: except to make it clear. Yeah. Well, that's what I, yeah, that's what I mean to, to make it, you know, to put yourself in the mind of someone who doesn't know what you're talking about and has to figure out, What's going on? Yeah.
1: Well, sure. That's part of craft to -hmm. to make it clear. It's got to be, I believe in clarity, not, you know, not being literal all the the time, but, um, it it has to, you have to have an entrance into the poem, Mm -hmm. you know, but the poem may be a little surreal or leaping and that's fine. You may not be able to totally articulate everything that's happening and yet you have to have an entrance. It could move you greatly, even if you can't articulate every single thing. Mm -hmm. But of course, I you know I care about the reader, but that's not what I'm thinking about when I write it. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so I guess for one last question, um, why poetry? Like, why, um, um, why poetry and not other genres? Why, um, why do this? Like, why devote your life to sharing your story, um, in in your your imagination with others?
1: Um that's the only thing I could do I mean I I could never write fiction for example I'm not drawn to it and I I don't think I'm capable of all those plot lines or uh, I mean Lynn Emanuel has an essay about that about you know I don't care about the color of the drapes I don't want to get from room to room I I like the the distilled even though they're very long poems but the distilled intensive look of something um I think, for me, it's probably related to the adoption thing of, you know, how to find a moment, how to find a place to be for a while that matters, Mm -hmm. you know, that I believe matters. Um, Nonfiction, when I was writing that memoir, that was, I found it, even though it has a poetic feel to it, possibly, I found it really challenging. Mm -hmm. I'm not, even, even though I'm talking a lot now, I'm I'm not a long talker and <laughs> and I I'm a I'm a fan of the short answer uh-huh. and I'm am a fan of the like give me the short version you know and and uh you know I mean I appreciate complication but you know I love the beautiful moments that can be created in poetry that could transport in such a, a short amount of time that I I think that's beautiful and and that really uh makes so many things possible. You know, that you can depart. It feels like you can be in a line, and then you can depart and disappear somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't want to know the whole story. I'm yeah. sick of the whole story. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's great. That's a great um <laughs> great explanation. I love that. Thanks. Really thanks so much. I think we're um we've got enough of a really insightful interview. I really appreciate it. I was thinking thanks, since we're, um, I don't know what I'm really doing here because we don't usually do these over Skype. Um, and this is hopefully going to become a podcast. Would you want to read a few poems at the end and, and to, sh- to share?
1: Sure. Do you have any, do you want them to be waitress poems or do you, wa- do um, you want, do you care if they're in the new just, book? Or? Just
0: whatever you'd like to read. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, your new book's coming out. I have Jackknife here. I can show as you read on screen if you want to read anything from Jackknife. Um, up to you. Whatever you, what do you feel like sharing? Maybe like you know, like three poems or something. Sure.
1: Um, I'll read the title poem from the Body Wars. Mm-hmm. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah. Sure. So, just go ahead.
0: Yeah, I can actually put it up. It says not for retail sale, but I could still show it.
1: Yeah, you could show it.
0: <laughs> okay. Sure. Uh, let me hang on and and get your audio too. Okay. So yeah, okay. go ahead. The Body War is up there. Go ahead and go ahead and read it.
1: Okay, The Body Worse. I walked into the woods bleeding. I left the town and mourned. Midnight in Alaska, still light, and I was alone, walking into the Sitka woods. It had been one year since I'd bled and longer since I'd fucked anyone. I was propelled forward into the thickness, into the needles and dirt of Sitka spruce, and stupidly, Not even afraid of bear. My father, the person I clung to, needed to stay alive, had died six months before. He was the only one who made sense in my body, and his leaving was the impossible thing. I didn't yet know my own wars and how to name them. So during my father's sickness, when I stopped bleeding, the gynecologist said, well, it's stress. And did I know that in World War II, the women paratroopers stopped having periods? I was stunned by his directness, intensity, earnestness. You are in a war, he said. I didn't know what to do with that. And so I got on a boat to Alaska, the Alaska Marine Highway, slept on the deck until I froze. Then the shipman gave me a hanging bunk and slipped me food from the cafeteria. They said, you can sleep here, but watch out for the bow thrusters. I had no idea what they meant until the sound burst open and my berth swayed, and it was time to get off. It was a time of great changes. And days later, I'm wandering the woods at midnight feeling lost and found in this northern place. And it was there I felt the blood start to move, Felt a rising and falling in the stream down my leg. And I cried in the forest alone. For my beautiful father gone too soon. For myself and all my ignorance. Not even knowing my own wars. The ones already fought. Or the many to still come.
0: Thanks so much for sharing that. That was um, The Body Wars. The title poem from, from Body Wars. I'm glad you read that one too. When you were talking about your father, I wanted to sort of interrupt you and just say that it was so moving um the descriptions of him in your relationship which is it was sort of the the sort of bomb we needed in the books you know as we were going yeah (laughs) and um and so i really i'm glad you could share one of those uh poems Um, do you want to read something else a couple more
1: sure i'll read a couple more um i you know thinking of working in in prison um i've been trying to write this one for a while um Let's see, this is called um, Train Jumper. So I was working in uh, Moundsville Penitentiary uh, when I was 23 years old, which was as a social worker. Um, and I realized when I went in there that I was in over my head, so I I just started to, to listen to the uh, inmates and their stories. This was one of them. Train Jumper. Interview, Moundsville Penitentiary, 1975. I used to love jumpin' trains, he said. That's how I got this. He knocked on his wooden stick leg, old school, like Captain Ahab, he said, with a broom handle-like extension that rose from knee to waist, the stilt sticking out of his pant leg below the knee and gathered up and above it like it was stuffed with sheets or cotton or something soft, and when he walked, his whole body shook as he swung his right peg leg around in a half circle, enough to power a generator. About five foot six and skinny, with years on his face, in deep cuts of wrinkles and dark circles of eyes, sitting in the visitor room of Moundsville Penitentiary, he said, I threw a rock through the window of the pawn shop to get a gun. Robbed the Seven-Eleven next door. All I took was an orange crush and a beef jerky. Didn't take long. I sat on the curb until the cops came. Was the best beef jerky because I knew I was coming back. This is home now. I'm too old for the trains. Here's good. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe I'll read one more. I. I, I was talking about addiction and... Um this one started from uh, something really ridiculous that I that I heard myself say, and <laughs> I'm an ad, I'm an addict, you know, I'm in recovery for a long time, but someone asked me a couple years ago, they said, "Did you ever do heroin?" And I said, no, no, I never did heroin. I only snorted it, which is, <laughs> which is yeah. ridiculous. That's like what an addict would say. I'm like, no, I never did it. I just did it, you know. So so I, so I wrote this. Um, it's called Speedballing. I woke bloody from snorting heroin, rocking myself skinless, the veins in my neck and my pink eyes speedballing blood, shooting up words like all addicts do. I never did heroin, I only snorted it. I never did crack, I just freebased the coke I had. Getting clean, a bigger mind fuck. Pray, they said. Good, they said. Let go. They wanted blood for their spiritual path, and I wanted to please, but inside I was granular, weepy. I woke wanting frenzy, having never been trained in the sweet goodnight When you ask yourself, who's the animal, who's the killer? Just know they taught us to drink the blood of a man nailed to a cross when we were children. So fuck it. Fuck sweetness. Just fuck it. And every other misguided bedtime story. I skinned myself down to my own idea of bone until the song and the gear shift became my only true loves. Shooting up words to stay alive because... Everybody wants blood. It's just where and how you want to give it.
0: Thanks so much. That was Speedballing by Jan Beatty. Um, these are poems from her her newest book, which is just out from Pitt Press, um, uh, The Body Wars. Um, it'll be out in September, um, or it will have been out in September by the time <laughs> people see this. But um, yeah, thanks so much, Jan. It's been it's a wonderful conversation. I, I learned so much. I'm sure everybody else watching has too. Um, thanks so much for joining us. And um, yeah, and I'll talk to you again soon.
1: Thank you, Tim It was great. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah. Bye.
0: Hey, again. So that was our interview with Jan Beatty. I hope you enjoyed it, um, including a few poems that she read at the end. Now, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be uh, Fiona Z. Lorraine. And she um, is a poet, um, in addition to being a poet, she's a classically trained avant-garde harpist she's also a translator of Chinese poetry, um, contemporary Chinese poets mostly, which is really fascinating and then she has a new book, Rain in Plural uh, which just came out recently so there's a lot to talk about Um, Fiona lives in France so um, note the special time the um, Rattlecast is going to appear six hours earlier than normal so it's going to be 3pm Eastern Time noon um, Pacific Time Tuesday, November 10th that's next Tuesday. And we will also do the prompt for this week. The prompt was to write a concrete poem. So, um, so write your concrete poem. Join the open lines. Um, if you're available at that time of day, six hours earlier than we normally do, uh, the Rattlecast will be Rattlecast number 66 with Fiona Z. Lorraine. Hope to see you then. Good night.